Parents everywhere are going through so much stress and uncertainty right now. It's hard to find sources of relief nowadays. This is why we at Parent Driven Development love Nurture Life. Nurture Life provides nutritious, ready-to-eat meals for babies starting at 10 months old. Toddlers, kids, and teens delivered fresh right to your door. Meals are designed to meet the nutrient and portion needs for each age group and are developed by Nurture Life's registered dietitians and chefs. Meals are focused on organic produce, antibiotic and hormone-free proteins and whole grains, and offer a full serving of veggies in every meal. Nurture Life has recently launched new and exciting meals, such as the chicken, sweet potato, and waffle finger food for babies, and the butter chicken with peas, rice, and mini naan for toddlers, kids, and teens. In addition to these new offerings, there will also be additional meals that will be available on the menu for a limited time period to continue to provide innovative, flavorful, and unique meal options for families. Nurture Life's easy subscription model allows you to sign up for weekly deliveries, skip weeks, or pause your subscription whenever you want. You can build your own box to select the right mix of meals for your family by age group, dietary restrictions, and allergies. Get the best meals for your kids and family delivered right to your door. Available for every zip code across the contiguous United States. Get 30% off your first two Nurture Life orders with the code PARENTDRIVEN30. Visit NurtureLife.com to redeem and find a moment of relief when it comes to mealtime. Welcome to Parent Driven Development. I'm Kay Wu, and today I'm here with my friend, Art. Hi, I'm Art, and today I'm here with my friend, Allison. Hi, I'm Allison, and today we're here with Anna McKenzie. She's a software engineer who's dedicated to improving parental leave policies in tech. She's currently working at VoiceFlow, a software startup that specializes in workflow tools for building voice experiences. And she's the co-author of The Expecting Playbook, a toolkit that helps startups of all sizes roll out supportive parental leave policies. And her follow-up book, titled The Parental Playbook, provides startups with the necessary tools to support parents upon their return to work. In 2018, Anna was named one of the top 25 women of influence in Canada, as well as one of the top 30 women in tech making a difference by the DMZ. Welcome, Anna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And this is this is such a great topic. We're, we're so excited to, to talk to you about it. I think to get us started, it would be great to just know like why for both the parental playbook and the expecting playbook, I mean, how did you come up with the idea? Why did you decide to why did you decide to write these? Yeah, so it was at this point now, I guess six years ago when I first got the idea for the expecting playbook. And the real motivation for it came from being in an industry where I was certainly a minority in terms of my age and also my gender, and looking around and realizing that okay, if I fast forward five years from now, what does my career look like and, and, and what's going to happen? So I, I started to do job interviews at some other companies at a certain point. And because I wasn't actually looking for a job, I was kind of just, I like to kind of stay on the industry and kind of be aware of like, okay, how, like, what's my market value or, you know, what are other companies doing? Like just making sure that my interview skills are kind of staying up to par, but I, I didn't actually want a new job. And so I, I also kind of took it upon myself to start asking really difficult questions in interviews. 
So I would ask people, you know, why are there no women in leadership roles at your company? And why is there no one that looks like me at your company? And where's your pumping room? Like, what's your parental leave policy? And so many startups didn't have any answers for those questions. And I started to think about, well, what, you know, everyone's always talking about diversity, et cetera, et cetera. And in reality, most startups didn't have any kind of policies that if you fast forward in a couple of years would lead to leadership roles for women. And it, it really just started to piss me off. And so I was supposed to speak at this conference and I, the conference organizers asked me, can you, can you do something related to better hiring practices for women? And I kind of went off on this tangent about how one thing that would be way better and much easier would be if companies just told me what their parental leave policy is. Because if I'm going to go somewhere for a new job, then I want to know what the policy is because I plan on staying there for a long time. And even if I, you know, even at the time I didn't have a boyfriend, but maybe I would like to have one one day and maybe I would want to have a kid one day and therefore I need to know what these policies are. And when you ask, it, it sends a signal and whether you like it or not, people have an unconscious bias, right? They think, oh, this person is asking because she's planning on getting pregnant. So I'm going to hire somebody else. And so my suggestion was that A, company should have a policy and B, they should tell me what the policy is when I'm interviewing without me asking. And it was that conversation with these two conference organizers who just happened to be lawyers that sparked sort of the birth of the expecting playbook. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it is true. And when I talk to, I'll say that when I talk to men in particular about when they're asking me, you know, like, what's something that I can, like, what's something that they can do? One of the things that I suggest is that they ask about parental leave when they're interviewing or when they're talking to companies. One of the things that that I do when I look for jobs is ask. And again, like, it's it can often be a be a double-edged sword. I also, you know, when I get emails on on LinkedIn from recruiters, I, I sort of jokingly say like the easiest way to get a recruiter to stop emailing you is to ask about the parental leave policy of the <laughs> companies that they're recruiting for. Because I'll often, I'll respond and I'll say, you know, I'm only interested in opportunities where there are progressive parental leave policies in place. What is the parental leave policy for the companies that you're recruiting for? And legitimately 90% of the time they there is no response they never get back to me and so you know i i love it because i wish that like if there were more people asking those questions it normalizes it it does two things it normalizes asking the question not just for the people who might be having children in the future but just for everybody and i think it also reinforces to companies that that's something that they should care about Right. If everybody is asking where a pumping room is, that means that the company is maybe going to start thinking like, huh, if we're going to open a new office or build out a space or whatever, you know, a lot of people in interviews or a lot of people are asking for, you know, about about a pumping room. Like that seems like, I guess, something that we should allocate some funds for that we should, you know, look into look into benefits about. So, yeah, I mean, I totally, totally agree. It's actually interesting to hear as well the the origin of that for me because even before I had my first child, I had decided, I think it was like a long article in the Atlantic maybe about paternity leave and that 
that that actually was a really strong signal for gender-based inclusiveness in the workplace at any rate, because whether or not you may end up using maternity leave, that the, the presence of paternity leave and, you know, asking around and seeing if, if people there actually end up using it is very useful to determine, you know, are, are they set up so that people can take these leaves of absence from work hopefully paid, and then come back and continue their career as well, especially in such a male-dominated industry. Like There are many more users of paternity leave than maternity leave just based on the numbers there. And it's been a pretty good signal so far for me. Yeah. And and that's really about changing people's perspective on why an employer should care about this and should think about this and should problem solve for this because for so long they didn't have to. This is what I always tell people when they ask me you know, why I care so much about this. It, the workplace was designed for a world that no longer exists. You know, it's predicated on the existence of a housewife and childcare was never part of the equation because there was always someone at home. And now that's not the reality that we live in. And yet no one has gone back to change this sort of core architecture of how we work. And a lot of the time when I when I first started writing this book and I and I did have a co-author, um, Ella, who helps me with that one, I would go around to these companies. I tried to recruit people as sort of seed companies to be the example And a lot of people would laugh in my face. You know, they would act like, oh, it's never going to happen. You know, we don't have to change this. So we're not going to change this, this kind of thing. Or like, that's just the way it is. That's kind of what I heard all the time. What I would say to them is the workplace is not like some sort of immutable stone. We created it. We can change it. And I think something that's interesting about COVID is that you're seeing that. You're seeing that, oh, okay, people can work from home. Oh, okay children can be part of this equation and we need to rethink this. Then the reason they never did it before was because it wasn't table stakes. They never had to. People were always willing to be flexible themselves before they were willing to demand more from the employers. And that's because the person who's always in that vulnerable position is is typically, you know, expecting. And, and I think that from an employer's perspective, you're almost taking advantage of that person when they they can't push. They can't be pushy because they have to think about their livelihood for their family. So that's one of the reasons that I'm super loud about it. And I have been super loud about it for many years because, you know, as a software developer, my skills are in demand. So if one company is like, I don't want to hire you because you keep asking about parental leave, then I'm going to find a job somewhere else. And the second thing is I'm not a parent. So yet, you know, I don't have that pressure of, oh, I can't be too pushy because I need to make sure that I have this income coming in. And, you know, a lot of people think it's weird that I, that I do this, but I think that you have to stand up for what you believe in. And I was trying to change the world and make it better for, for the people that weren't able to use their voices. I love this approach. Essentially, I feel like it's uh, using the privilege that you recognize you have for good like when you have it what are these these are practical steps that you can take to as you said improve the whole industry and the world at large yeah i mean it's it's really interesting one of the one of the things that i'll say annoys me is when companies think that like oh somebody is expecting and therefore like they don't have to 
treat them well because like, oh, they're, you know, like they're expecting or like they've just had a baby and therefore like they won't leave. And it's like, no, you have to think about like the situation that you're actually like that you're creating for that person, what sort of work environment they're leaving, what sort of work environment they're they're stepping back into. Like all of those factors are are important. Like sometimes even more so, right? Because as you're reevaluating like what what is important after you have I know this especially happened to me after my first child and then I sort of knew a little bit more about like what I was for sure looking for before my second but you know making sure that I was at a company that I was where it was a healthy environment for parents or getting to that place was was really really important for me yeah Allison I feel like you and I we both we both had experiences of of happening to interview and change jobs while pregnant, right? And I had always wondered whether there was like extra surprise when I put in my two weeks notice at that job. Because I mean, like I could see someone who's just not thinking about it too hard. Yeah, being like, oh, someone who's pregnant, like looking for stability, like probably is a lower risk of attrition or or however they count that. And I always kind of wanted to be like, yeah, maybe. And the fact that I went out and got another job should be like a really strong signal <laughs> about how I was using viewing the situation, you know? Like people aren't really excited to start a new job in their second or third trimester <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, which is one of the the points that I depending on the audience that I'm talking to when I when I'm trying to pitching this idea. That's one of the things I lean on the most in terms of recruiting. If you have a great policy, you're going to get some great people. Because, you know, the funny thing about tech, especially back then, it was like six years ago, it was a very young industry in terms of who was there. And, you know, you're hiring people right out of university, et cetera, et cetera. But then everyone also always wants someone with five years experience, 10 years experience. And and guess what? (laughs) Those people are aging into parenthood. So if you really want the experience that they've, that they've gained in the industry, then you have to solve for this problem. And, and I don't even want to think of it as a problem, but my point is like, I'm consistently trying to get people to shift the idea of, okay, childcare, we have to think about childcare. How do we help with childcare as being something the employer has to think about as opposed to being something that the parents have to think about alone? It makes me think about my experience after I transitioned into tech because I came from a non-traditional background, you know, not fresh out of school, I'm well into my 30s. And when I started working, you know, the company that I worked for, they really prided themselves on their diversity, like all the um, promotional materials, for example, whether it was the website or printed or ads or whatever. There was all this talk about diversity and inclusion. But very quickly, I got to understand that, like, it's almost like they they talked about those ideals in terms of just visual representation. And one of the ways that I experienced the non-diversity and non-inclusion in the company was around not just parental policies, like officially, but even just the culture. And so the culture of the company, like the, the culture, like developing activities, for example, were all structured for the single childless, you know, employee. And it's funny because when I would bring it up like this is an issue, it was almost like 
what I was saying went completely over their heads. It was almost like, oh, we've never, we've never had a mother on our team or we've never had, I mean, we had parents, but they were all fathers and majority of them had stay at home spouses. And so effectively they were like the single childless employee. And so I just, it just struck me as like significant that you, you can have like this almost like veneer of diversity and inclusion, but how, how deep, do your policies go to really foster an environment where people from quote unquote, all walks of life can thrive. And so I felt like I really missed out on several opportunities to, you know, develop and build a rapport outside of work activity with my coworkers, because there was almost like little to no consideration for those who couldn't wrap up work at five and join you at the bar, for example. So, well, and that's like, I think one of the fascinating pieces also with like COVID, which Anna mentioned before, right? Like, like work is like, it's a, it's a construct and we're, I mean, the, the statistics that are coming out about how much more work female employees or moms or, you know, whatever are, are doing right now is it's just incredible and but it's also like it's because I think there's a much deeper realization since COVID that like school is not just school it's also like it's also this form of child care I mean I had this not intense but like I had this conversation with with my mom I have one who's going into kindergarten and she was saying like oh well like what is even full day kindergarten like kindergarten should only be a few hours a day and I was like not <laughs> not for those of us who are you know who have like two working parents like I, you know like both of our careers matter both of our careers are important but I think that that's like very much also the case right how are companies adjusting because it is predominantly uh, women who are and I think will be affected by everything that's happening right now with schools not reopening and, you know, I mean, all sorts of like different scenarios and situations. It's really interesting. I think it's really hard issue to figure out how we completely restructure what work looks like to be more accommodating either in this time or just like in general. Yeah. And it's a long time coming, right? It's this, it, we should have been having this conversation many, many years ago, but it's only coming now. And the other thing I will mention that that was brought up was in terms of the culture of being sort of parent inclusive, that's definitely something that I have seen and we have seen that helped me write the second book, The Parenting Playbook. One of the reasons that we wrote that was exactly for what was mentioned in terms of what are all of your social team bonding activities? Is it always going for drinks after work, et cetera, et cetera? And so what that book really focuses on is how to be inclusive of parents when they come back from leave. So making sure, for instance, that there's a pumping room that has a lock on it. That's like a big one that people seem to overlook. Making sure that there's not a window. Making sure that employees that are non-parents understand that they are working with employees that are parents, which means that something that I always talk about is you want to make sure that your employees can bring their whole selves to work. So if, if they have, you know, a child that kept them up all night, maybe that's something that they just need to vent about first thing in the morning, and then they can focus more on their work because it's about creating psychological safety. Whereas before I know, even from, from talking to my partner's, 
mom, when she was working and she was, you know, she had young children, you didn't talk about your kids, like full stop. You just basically pretended like you didn't have them. And I think that is something that needs to change. And that is something that creates a more positive culture of, you know, parent friendly policies, in addition to like many other things that are that are in the book. And the other thing that I was going to mention is the reason that companies overlook that from what I have seen is because it depends on who's on their leadership team. It depends on who the voices are in the room. They don't solve for that problem if it's never something that they thought about because it's a bunch of dudes who don't have kids. You know, it really speaks to the fact that you need to have diverse voices from all wakes of life in this leadership team forming what your company culture is going to be in order to have that implemented in a real and meaningful way at your company. You know, I love what you say about psychological safety. That really resonates with me because at one of my former jobs, the team that I worked on, I was I was the only parent and, you know, and that's including my manager. And just like you said, I felt there was no sense of understanding or like even interest, you know, as far as like, you know, my, my daughter was 18 months, I think, or 20 months at the time, you know, sleepless nights were the norm, teething, potty, you know, everything that kind of goes along with that age child. And I felt like I never felt the comfort or even the invitation. And I don't mean to say that they they knowingly did this or deliberately, but there was just never that invitation or comfort to bring that part of myself or that part of my my life to work and and express it and and have that expectation of like understanding, right? And the reason I mention it is because it changed so markedly when my manager changed. Cause then I didn't have that manager anymore. And then my new manager was a parent and was the primary caregiver or like, because I know that their partner had a very demanding, like at all hours of the day and night job. And so the majority of the active childcare fell on them. And so they became my manager and it's, it was like night and day. It was like, all of a sudden there was this outlet that I had. And, you know, we would, you know, if we came to a meeting and it was like a few minutes early, like we would just spend five minutes, just like, you know, talking about whatever early morning challenges we had before coming into it. Like, it was just, it was amazing. And I think, this manager like did more to normalize that kind of conversation, at least for me. And so, you know, that really resonates with me is having that psychological safety for parents at work and, and, and not being made to feel like that aspect of your life is unwelcome or, you know, not, not interesting, so to speak. Well, and I think there's also sometimes a, a fear of mentioning things. So like, for example, in the past, I've been nervous about like, can I, you know, can I mention that my child hasn't been sleeping well the last few days or that, you know, I've been up a bunch during the night because it's like, oh, is, is my team going to think less of me or are they going to think that I like can't 
pull my weight as a teammate because I'm like super sleep deprived. Right. And sometimes like, I feel like when I'm on a team with parents or on a team where there's a lot more psychological safety, it's like, like, not only can I talk about that, but also like, guess what? It's cool if I'm not as productive on a week that I've also only gotten like two hours of sleep a night, like it'll be fine. Right. There's not sort of like that, that additional fear. And, and so I think that for a lot of parents also, there's, I know that when I was surveying and talking to a lot of parents, they talked about like putting in extra hours or like being, you know, just constantly, constantly concerned about pulling their weight if they had to leave early for something or, you know, take their kids to the doctor because they just felt like their teammates would also sort of like look down on them for whatever reason. Yeah, when it's interesting that you say that too, because the reality is when you when you share those real moments of your life with your team members, I think that it actually just helps to foster better collaboration and a stronger bond between your your teammates, and the work product ends up being better. That's one of the things that I touch on when I talk to founders as well, is that when you create psychological safety you allow your employers to have the space to do better work because they're just in a better place. And at the end of the day, that's what you want anyways. And yes, it means that you have to rethink the workplace and how it runs from the traditional outdated perspective. But if diversity and inclusion and et cetera, et cetera, is really, if it matters to you the way that most people say it matters to them, then here are the ways that you do it, right? These, these are what the books are for. It's a starting place and everyone can kind of put their own spin on it. You know, a lot of the recommendations in there also include talking to the parents, surveying your employees, you know, making sure that you're listening to what people need and meeting those needs. And the data will tell you, I don't have to tell everyone, the data reflects that those are the stronger teams. Those are the better performing teams. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great note to sort of move on to our our next segment from. So we move into the portion of our podcast where we talk about genius and fail moments. So these are moments over the last few weeks where you have felt like an absolute genius, like you've done something really fantastic or a little bit of a failure, anything related to parenting. And that could be parenting of children or others or pets or whatnot. So who would like to go first? I have a quick one. In our house, we had a almost three-year-old and the 10-month-old now. And like, there's just something about the hours between when dinner is over and like before the whole bedtime song and dance starts that like, that's like a really long period. <laughs> there's so many minutes in between those events. And it's the end of the day, everyone's tired. It's just, it can be a bit much sometimes. And our, our three-year-old's been having a, a little bit more of a struggle with it. So lately, my strategy has been as I'm cleaning up with dinner, he, he's getting into the stage where he like really wants to help. And I don't mind with the with the dishes if as you know, as long as there haven't been raw meat around it, I don't have to worry quite as much about like, oh, don't touch that or you know, don't touch the sharp knives or whatever else. So my so-called genius, my strategy lately to draw the amount of time that that task takes and have him help me by I, I pass him one utensil at a time <laughs> to put into the dishwasher so that we're just occupied working on this task for extra time 
And, uh, you know, usually I go back in and rearrange the dishwasher afterwards after everyone's asleep. But, you know, at least it's all in there. And that's if he's occupied putting one spoon, one fork at a time into the dishwasher, you know, that's that's slightly less destruction in the living room that I'm going to have to clean up after nine o'clock as well. So that's been working well. (laughs) Nice. I can go next. It's actually a little a little bit similar. So we also were just sort of killing time. For us, the longer period of time is in between like when stuff for the day sort of ends before we're like quite ready for dinner. So we don't really like, we don't want to like go on a long walk or like sort of start something new because we're, you know, within whatever, let's say like within 30, 40 minutes of sort of like of of dinner, bedtime chaos shenanigans. So my my kids, especially my son, but both of my kids have been really into like building forts and taking all of the cushions and making obstacle courses and that sort of stuff, which, you know, I've been like super just chill about because they say that we're not letting our kids do play like play on playgrounds yet. So, you know, without like without the ability to play on playgrounds for the last few months, they're saying that that sort of stuff is like, is really good for kids. But it was like getting to be a little bit much in the living room. And I, you know, watch them like stomp on all of my couch cushions and see the lifespan of my couch (laughs) decreasing with every stomp. And anyway, so I, I was like, let's go out. I was like, I'm going to put together an obstacle course for you guys. Let's go outside. And I like looked really quickly in the toy bin and I grabbed a few super random items and went into our front yard and made them like a little obstacle course. It was like, you know, some things to run around, some things to jump over, blah, blah, which like that in and of itself, I feel like is a genius, but I grabbed this like captain's hat and part of the obstacle course was that they had to run over to the captain's hat, pick it up, put it on their head and go, ahoy matey, and then take it off before running to the next thing, (laughs) which was just like such pure enjoyment for me because it was hilarious. So that felt like both I got them, you know, they they cleaned up the living room quickly, got them outside, did an obstacle course, and the ahoy matey part was just like sort of like icing on the cake. That's great. I don't know if I can call mine a, a genius per se. I think it's more like a pat on my back for staying the course. So I've been potty training my now three-year-old and we've been good as far as number one, but number two has been like just a nightmare. And I almost kind of gave up and was just like, you know what? She's not going to be going number two in her underwear, like before she goes to college. So eventually this is going to end. Like that was almost like my resignation moment because I was just Mm -hmm. over it. But, you know, I spoke with her pediatrician and, you know, she gave me like a number of strategies. And I think I'm just really proud that I stayed the course because it's all resolved now. And she's using the bathroom like throughout the day, like, you know, for all her potty needs and, you know, no more soiled underwear. So, yeah. I don't know if it's a genius, but I'm definitely very glad to be on the other side of this battle because it's it's taken almost a year. So, yeah. Congratulations. 
<laughs> Thank you. Oh man, there there are like so many areas where I, I I use the same strategy where I'm like, this is this this is really annoying, really frustrating. He's not going to go to college, like not sleeping through the night or or you know fill in the blank. Okay, I guess it's my turn. I so I have a pet parenting fail that I will do my best to tell you the story. We were at our neighbor's backyard last week celebrating with them a little bit because they just sold their house and we brought our dog and we had him off leash in the backyard because it's fenced in and lo and behold a skunk comes into the picture it's already dark out and our dog he's about 70 pounds he's a hunting dog he goes after it gets sprayed it's this whole thing we spend the next half an hour you know hosing him off bathing him doing like the homemade mixture of trying to get the skunk oil off of our giant dog. You know, fast forward like an hour and a half, we think we're in the clear. We go back to our house. We come through the backyard, leave the dog out in the backyard to dry because the the skunk off stuff that we had says, you know, you have to let your dog air dry. So we take all our clothes off. I don't know if you guys have ever been, if you've ever experienced fresh skunk oil, but it's a very, very strong smell and it gets into everything. So we ended up having to like throw the clothes out that we were wearing, but we left it in the backyard. We went in through the basement. We're showering in the basement. Dog is outside. We think we're almost done. It's already like midnight at this point. And I'm looking at the back window and I see the dog dart across the yard. Another skunk. In our yard, (laughs) he got sprayed again, (gasps) and we had to start from scratch the whole process (laughs) because it was in our backyard this time. It was even stronger the smell, and it got into our house. So I was boiling vinegar because it's supposed to help you know get rid of it. So first of all, we had to wash him again, do the whole thing. And then I'm I'm in the house, like trying to air it out. I have like three pots of vinegar going until like three, four in the morning. It was just the longest night of my life. And there were a lot of mistakes I think we made in terms of exactly what you're supposed to do to make sure the skunk smell doesn't stay on your dog. But at least if it happens again, I have a plan, I guess. Oh my gosh, it's awful. (laughs) I apologize. I apologize. (laughs) All right, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. If folks want to find out more about you or more about your work, where can they find out more? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at What's Up Anna with two N's. And the expecting playbook, I will say, is it needs a revision. So that one is down, but you can find the, the parenting playbook online right now. But feel free to reach out to me, tweet at me, DM me. I, um, I'm very responsive on there. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Parent Driven Development Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have questions that you'd like us to chat about on air, email us at panel at parentdrivendevelopment.com or find us on Twitter at, at parentdrivendev. And if you like what you hear, please support us on Patreon. We're patreon.com slash parentdrivendev and rate us on iTunes. Thanks.